For those 300 or more of you who have not been with us in other services up to now, let me take a moment to speak to you about the line of thinking that we have been following. There is a text in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse 23, that has been primarily our, our text through these opening sessions. The prophet is speaking and he says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. The way of a man is not in himself. This is the thing that makes us different from God. God alone is the one who has within himself his own way and his own fulfillment. I was reading early this morning and found in John 5:26 a passage where Jesus is speaking about his father, and he says something astounding about himself and his relationship to the father. He says in verse 26 of chapter 5, the Father hath life in himself. He does not need anyone else in order to live, and he does not need any other thing in order to live. How strikingly different from you and me. Our total existence dependent continually and totally upon our environment, upon those forces and people that are around us. But then Jesus went on to say something about himself. The Father hath life in himself, but he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. So that Jesus said, as far as he was concerned, he in himself had not had life. He was the second person of the Blessed Trinity, and as such derived his existence from the Father. But the Father had granted unto him a life like unto his own, so that now the Son had life in himself, and because of this he could give life to us. And here is the difference between Christ and us. Christ has life in himself, and marvel of marvels, he has your life and my life in himself. And it is to him that we must turn if we are to truly live. Our life is not in us. Our life is in him. That's the tragedy about missing Christ, because if a man misses Christ, he has missed life. And a man can live a whole lifetime and never know life. Yea, in fact, a man can live a whole eternity and never have found life. True life, not inherent within us, it is something that is extrinsic to us and comes from without and comes in the person of Jesus Christ as he comes to us. That's the reason that it's such a tragedy when a person lives through his days and never comes to know Jesus Christ. Well, if it is such a tragedy for a man to live his days and never come to know Jesus Christ, could a man live his days and think that he had come to know him? I think it is completely possible. I remember one of the great Anglican bishops, bishop of the Anglican Church, who wrote one of the greatest defenses of the Christian faith ever written. In the days of Wesley, it was a bestseller, and it was the book to which so many turned to find an answer to the agnosticism of the day a book that had something of the power in its day of some of C.S. Lewis's writings in our own day. And when he came to the end of his way and was in his final illness, a bachelor, he turned to his gardener, and he said, the tragic thing is that having preached to others, now I need one to speak to me. I do not really know whether I know him. 
And the gardener was astounded, a humble and an ignorant man, but a believing man. And he said, Bishop, you can't be speaking the truth. And he said, yes, I do not know. The gardener turned to him and said, Bishop, but you must remember. The scripture says, and him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Have you never come to him? But you can only know him if you come to him. You can only know him if you seek him. You can know, only know him if you consciously and deliberately turn your attention in his direction. Does not come by accident. Does not come by heritage. Does not come by tradition. Does not come by circumstance. It comes by an inner commitment that produces an inner relationship between you and the living Christ. Now, when Christ comes to a person's heart, he does make a difference. And there are some tests that we can measure, take to measure, to check whether the new life that is in Christ has come to a person's heart. In fact, the Gospels are very, very carefully explicit at this point to let us know that there is a difference when Christ comes to a man's heart. That difference is markable, it is measurable, it is identifiable, so that a man should be able to know as surely as he knows that this is up and that that is north and that this is daylight rather than night, a man should be able to know with that kind of certainty that Christ has come to his own heart. I was reading this morning, reading, trying to read through the Gospel of John to find afresh how the Gospel of John, how the evangelist John presents the story. I was impressed again with that third chapter of John and that matchless story of Nicodemus. It's so familiar that I hesitate to read it because when I read it, it's so familiar to many of you that you begin turning me off because you say, oh, I know that. But think of it in relation to the whole Gospel of John where in chapter 1, Jesus is identified by the evangelist as the word of God who was God. And then how he came to his society picking up disciples, an Andrew who found a, a, a Peter, and then a Philip who found a Nathaniel, and a John who who brought his brother, and so the disciples began to follow him. And then he took them to that marriage at Cana of Galilee where he turned water into wine. And then he moved on to Jerusalem where in the temple he dared to correct the order of the temple in spite of the fact that the priest looked upon him as a total outsider. He moved in as if that house belonged to him. And when they challenged him, he said, Yes, this is my house. You built it for me because I am the Son of God. They were astounded. They said, show us a sign that you've done, that you have a right to this position. And he said, that's what I just did. And he confounded them all by his, what appeared to them, arrogance and self-assertiveness. And so as the impact and the shock of his presence in Palestine began to be felt, the temple priests began to have secret meetings saying, who is this man? John almost upset the apple cart. And John said, this one is greater than he. Who is this man, Jesus? And what are we going to do with him? And so in the nighttime, one of that group came to him, a man by the name of Nicodemus, one of the Sanhedrin, one of the Jewish leadership. And he came to him and said, good master, we know that you're a teacher come from God. You may perplex us, but it's obvious that no man can do the things that you do, the signs, the miracles, unless God were with him. Jesus looked back at him and just cut right through. 
He didn't say it, but it was all in the connotation and in the context. Nicodemus, you're a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus, you're a religious scholar. Nicodemus, you're an expert on the scripture. Nicodemus, you're a master of ecclesiastics and ecclesiology. You're a master of all things religious. But I want to tell you something. Unless you are born again, or to take the Greek, unless you are born from above, you can't even see the thing of which I am speaking. You are on the outside, and you will never even be able to see in unless something radically new has come to you. It will be when it comes, Nicodemus, it will be as new as a new birth. Now notice the man to whom he says this. He was a religious man, as we said. And a very religious man, a religious leader, professor of religion. But he was more than that. The evidence is that he was a good man. And did you know a religious man can be a good man? And a good man can be a religious man? We live in a day, and it's typical, usually in most every generation, people suspect a religious man of not being good. And they expect a good man to be not too religious. But here was a man who obviously was both. If you will read the seventh chapter, you will find that in another session of the Sanhedrin of the Jewish leadership, when they were saying, what are we going to do about him? Certainly we must destroy him. It was Nicodemus who said, wait a minute, fellas. This isn't fair. This isn't just. We cannot deal with him unfairly. And I'm sure that when Nicodemus did that, he did that at some personal risk. The animosity and the hostility to Jesus was already intense enough that he was risking not only position, but perhaps more when he dared to stop that steamroller that had already started to destroy Jesus. But then you come in the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, and you find that John is the one who tells us these things, and he undoubtedly expected us to relate them to this man, Nicodemus, when he comes in the third chapter. It was Nicodemus who joined, you will remember, in the burial of Jesus and assisted in his funeral, in his burial. It was more than Peter did. Peter didn't even know where they buried him. That was more than James or John or some of the others did. And at that point, Peter felt that it was a personal threat to be identified with Jesus, that it was dangerous to his own safety to be identified with Jesus. But Nicodemus identified himself. I find there's something within me that says this was a man who was a good man and a fair man and a compassionate man and a courageous man. But it's to him that Jesus turns and says, Nicodemus, if what I have to give to you comes to you, it will be as radical as if you were born all over again. Because you see, it is a kind of life that you have never known. And life normally begins with birth. And when you enter into this, it will be a new life, new even to you. I've always been intrigued that Jesus used the strongest of all metaphors with this kind of a man. We tend to use this with another kind of person. I think we probably would have been more comfortable saying to the woman at the well who'd had five husbands and was a person of, of unfortunate reputation, When to, I think we would have tended more to say to her, you need a whole new life. Or to the woman taken in adultery in John 8, we would have tended to have said, you need a whole new life, sister. 
or to a legion who had a thousand devils in him, we would have tended to say, man, you need a whole new life. But here he's as good a man as ever came to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, it's not a case of you're needing a whole new life. You just need my life, and when it comes, it'll be new, and there's no other way. Your life, truly, is not in you. It is in me, and you must let me give it to you. Now, his life is as different from our goodness as a new life. One New Testament scholar said that Nicodemus had heard that expression, to be born again before, that it really was an expression that was used among Jews to describe a Gentile, a pagan, becoming a Jew. That intrigued me. When you look at the Jew of all Jews and say, friend, you should become a Jew. It's like saying to a Methodist bishop, you know, friend, you should join the church. But of course, that was exactly what he was saying. He was saying, Nicodemus, you have all the symbols and you have all the trappings, but you don't have the reality. The mark of God has been cut in your flesh, but the life of God has never been introduced into your heart. Better to have the symbols than not to have them, I suppose. But I suppose the one thing worse than having the symbols without the reality, or, ha or not having the symbols at all, might be having the symbols without the reality. And there are many people who have all the symbols but they've never known the reality. Or let me say, there are people who have known the reality and somewhere in their wanderings they have lost that reality and they've maintained all the language and all the symbolisms, but the reality is long gone. Like Mary and Joseph on the way home from Jerusalem traveled a day before they knew that Jesus was not with them. And there are many of us who lose him somewhere and we keep on playing the game as if the reality were still there. Now, what are the marks of this new reality and this new life? If, you, if it is a new life and if it's like a birth, I think it is fair to talk about, the, uh, talk about it in terms of what really happens when a person is born. So let me mention just a few very simple ones. There is no question but that when a person is born of God, there is a new consciousness in his life. He has moved into a new realm. Perhaps we should say a new realm has moved into his world. But any way you want to say it, it is a new context. And there are strikingly different things. He begins to be conscious of things that he had never been conscious of before. One of the things is that he's conscious of a presence in his life, really, intimately, that he never knew before. There was a university student in a religious emphasis week who was overheard praying, oh, thou great hypothesis, I fear that my conclusions in life are wrong. Will thou straighten me out on my premises so that my conclusions may be right? There are many people for whom God is little more than that, an hypothesis or a guess or a projection. But normally when a person is born of God, he finds himself beginning to move from saying Father to our Father to my Father. And there is within a spirit that bears witness that now we belong to him. But miracle of miracles, he belongs to us. And not only have we committed ourselves to him, 
but he has committed himself to us. We belong. And there is that sense of intimacy and that sense of belonging, consciousness that comes. God is no longer a stranger. And he is even more than a friend. He is a father and a savior. I don't know anything much more precious than that. But that's true. It should be that way. One of the things that uh, I enjoyed watching, and I've enjoyed watching through the years, at first I was too ignorant to be conscious of what was taking place when our first babies were born. You know, to watch them come aware of a totally new world. Watch them blink, and I wondered why they blinked the way they did. It was, it was very new. Did you ever watch a baby bite his own toe and then cry? And wonder why the pain? Because it never dawned on him that thing was connected to him. It came out of the misty altitude above him, and so he bit, and then he found, began to find who he was. Do you know there's something very preciously like that in a newly born Christian? He begins to be conscious of a new world, and oftentimes he doesn't know how to put it all together, but it's there. There's a completely new consciousness. God now has moved in, and whereas he's been a mystery and an enemy and a fear and a dread, now he's a friend and a savior. Christ becomes a brother, and every man becomes your brother. And you find instead of your life being turned this way, there is something now that begins to reach out. A friend of mine told me, he said, I wanted to walk down on the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, and put my arms around the last person I could find and tell him that Jesus loved him. He said, I never cared about anybody before in my life, in spite of the fact I was a bishop's son. That I went running across the hall to my brother-in-law who had given me a witness that I didn't understand, banged on his door and said, well, isn't it wonderful to be a believer? Especially interesting when a bishop's son becomes a believer, isn't it? Or a president of Asbury's son. Or your mother and father's son or daughter. And his brother-in-law who was a missionary in Brazil said, great. Ah, let's get some orange juice and celebrate the new world. It does things to you. I was talking with a friend of mine from Georgia this summer. He's an older man. He's in his 70s. He's not a part of this world in a sense. He's a part of a former age and a former world. I don't think he'd object if I called him a redneck. And he's a Baptist. Draw your own conclusions about that, but brother. And he said, Dennis, you know how I was educated and you know how I was trained. And then he said, just a few years ago as a grown man, I found Christ. My life has been transformed. He said, I went to church and he said, there was a black man there and he found Christ. He said, I got so carried away before I knew what I was doing. I had my redneck arms around him, squeezing him for dear life in South Georgia. a new world, new appetite. You don't understand what's taking place, but it's new. Okay. There are new appetites that come. And for the first time in your life, you want things that before you sort of felt you ought to want, but you really didn't, didn't. If you were honest about it, didn't want them. I grew up in a family that was religious enough that I knew that all good people read the Bible. So I said, I ought to read the Bible too. 
I can remember standing outside of the Sunday school building when I was an early teenager saying, I don't want to go to church. A lot more fun to shoot minnows in the creek. I think I'll go home. It's a beautiful spring day. And then something said, yeah, and you'll be miserable all the time, guilty because you didn't go to church. And I thought, if I could just make my conscience shut up and leave me alone, I could have a good time. So I racked my brain as to how you could affect that. So I finally looked my conscience in the face and said, if you'll just shut up, I'll go home and read a whole chapter in the Bible. And my conscience was so awed by that that it promptly laid right down and went to sleep. So I went home. I went in my bedroom and pulled out my Bible to keep my promise, and unfortunately, I didn't know where the short Psalms were. And so I started to read, and before I finished the chapter, I was asleep, and when I waked up, my parents were home, and I'd missed my opportunity, and Felt a little guilty, too. But do you know the first thing I noticed when I became a Christian? I couldn't live without Scripture. Somebody gave me a Gospel of John. I was 13 years of age. It was paperback. It was red. I carried that thing in my shirt pocket so long that Mother began to say, what's wrong in your shirt? Because I'd play baseball and sweat. And the ink in that cheap testament would run, and all my shirts were red. But you know something? I couldn't live without it. It was food. That was one of the most dramatic changes in my life. It was not something I willed. I didn't will that any more than our babies willed crying when they wanted milk. Just something within that wanted it. First time in my life I went to church not because I had to. I went to church because I couldn't stay away. I looked for a place where I could hear the word. There was an appetite within me, a longing for God. God put it there. New appetite. There was a new power within. And to have life means to have power. The power of movement, the power of action, the power of thinking power of willing. And if Christ comes to you, there'll be new power in your life. We were talking last night about the law. In Plutarch, there's a story about the fellows who had a friend who died, and they didn't want to lose him. So they kept him around. And one day they were going on a trip, and so they wanted him to go with him. So they stood him up and said, come on, let's go. And he didn't move very well. And so they said, come on. And every time they started to move, he'd topple over. And so they stood him there and tried to get him balanced, right? So at least he could stand. And finally, they came to the drastic conclusion there was something wrong with him. You know, that's the way with so many people trying to live the Christian life without Christ within. There is no way you can live the Christian life without Christ within. Augustine found that. Fought it for years, but when Christ came, he found a power he had never known before. And after his conversion, he was walking down the street, and his mistress saw him, and she had not seen him lately. And she cried out, Augustine, Augustine, and he turned and took one look and ran, but ran in the wrong direction, ran away from her, which he had never done before. And she ran after him and said, Augustine, isn't it you? And he turned and looked back and said, no, it isn't. And he went on his way. And he knew that it wasn't the same old Augustine because his appetites had changed and his desires. There was something within him that longed for holiness and for truth and for goodness and righteousness. But there's not only new, new consciousness. We talk about the witness of the Spirit. New appetites. 
and a new power, a new dynamic, where now you can do things that once you could not do because of his spirit within you, his life within you. But in addition to that, there is the fourth thing, and this is the most important of all. There is a completely new source of being. Now let me say it that way. Really what I'm talking about is faith. But if I tell you that you need faith, most of us sort of tune out. We don't know what we mean when we say, believe that Jesus is the Christ, sure, you tell me to and I'll do it. No, that's not what I'm talking about. A completely new source of being. Because do you know that's what it means in Jesus' language when he says, if you believe in me, you'll have life. Because to believe means to come to the place where you cast yourself upon him, you depend upon him. And you do not look to yourself or your resources, but you look to him. Your eyes, the eyes of your soul are fastened upon him. If you will get one of our Bible teachers and corner him, he will tell you about the Hebrew words for faith. They come from the word amen, the word we get amen from, amen. It's a root that has to do with firmness or support. So that... That which is firm or supported is established. And there is a connection between establishment and support and firmness and faith. Because the word for faith is a word that comes from that same root. Amen. So let it be. When in Genesis 15, 6 it says, And Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. That's the verb. Amen. form of amen. Of amen. So that he believed God. Let me tell you, the word for truth in the Old Testament comes from the same root. It is related to faith. Faith is related to truth. Because we're talking about reality, that which stands, that which will carry your weight, that which will support you, that which will be there when it's all over with. But one of the most precious ones to me is this. The word for nurse the feminine participle, omenet. And to believe is, in a sense, to find the source of your life in another. The way a child finds the source of his life in those opening moments of his life in his mother. Helpless, dependent, you leave him alone and he will die. But you place him at his mother's breast, and if she is normal and healthy, he will be normal and healthy. He will draw his life from her. That's what happens when a person becomes a Christian. He fastens in on Jesus, and he begins to draw his life from him. I want to tell you something. That is the key thing. The new appetites are not the most important thing. They are a byproduct of this. The new power is not the important thing. That is a byproduct of this. The new consciousness is a joy, but that is not the important thing. It is that dependence upon Christ where you draw your life from him. Every moment you lean upon him. That is the heart of being a Christian. That's the reason that Jesus ended that passage with Nicodemus, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Because that's the kind of life Jesus had. He's the only one that ever conquered death, the grave, and hell. And when we draw our life from him, it is his life now within us, and it is eternal. I'd like to ask you, are you drawing your personal existence from Christ? That's what it means to be a Christian.